0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: This is the WA Country Hour on ABC Radio WA.
2: Good afternoon. Happy Friday. Best day of the week, I reckon. My last day in the chair, filling in for Belinda Varaschetti, who will be back with you on Monday. Now, you may have noticed a rally in the wheat price over the last few weeks. Have you been scratching your head, wondering what's driving that, especially given all the uncertainty in global markets? Well, it looks like drier conditions in Russia is behind the bump in prices. West
3: Australian, Australian growers are very good at, you know, using every drop of rain to put into grain production. So the water use efficiency is excellent. You can certainly say that through Russia and Ukraine, they're still developing those skills.
2: That's grain marketer Nathan Cattle, and you'll hear more from him shortly. And after the weather at half past 12, you'll also hear about some serious late season rain that's got Victoria farmers smiling. But up first today, you'd hardly know much of the world is in economic turmoil if you used yesterday's state budget as a guide. That's the takeaway from the set of finances unveiled by Treasurer Ben Wyatt, who revealed WA was forecast to record a surplus of $1.2 billion this financial year, and that's on top of $1.7 billion surplus already booked for the 2019-20 financial year, and despite COVID-19 wreaking havoc among economies around the world. There wasn't too much in the budget that hasn't already been announced by the government, but to take us through some of the finer points is Daniel Mercer. Daniel, what does his budget have for
1: agriculture? Well, um, in short, not a lot, Jess. Uh, the, I mean, the, the finances are basically being maintained in a way that they are minimising their spending on anything that's not infrastructure uh, and keeping their powder dry. I mean... The, a $1.2 billion surplus forecast for this financial year is extraordinary in the circumstances. We're the only state in the country, probably one of the only jurisdictions in the world, that would be forecasting that. And the government's basically going to be keeping a lot of its powder dry on the off chance that there's a second wave, uh, but possibly because there's an election coming up and they want to perhaps announce some more spending then.
2: Daniel, does the budget shed any light at all on, on when WA's hard border might be lifted?
1: It does and it doesn't, Jess. I mean, for example, in the budget papers is an assumption by Treasury that the hard border will be lifted in the June quarter next year, so possibly as early as April, um, with international travel to potentially resume by the December quarter. But when asked about this in the lockup yesterday, Ben Wyatt and the Premier, Mark McGowan, They've been quick to stress that those assumptions are treasuries and treasuries alone and any decision about when to open the border is up to the government. And uh, that didn't wash with WA Farmers, whose CEO Trevor Whittington says everything in the budget is a reflection of government policy. And he says the suggested time frame for reopening is basically too long.
4: People with contracts are unable to fulfil their contractor timelines are being served notices for um, being in breach. So we're going to see businesses go broke and that will have a flow through the rest of the economy. But staring down the fact of months and months without being able to bring in skilled people, whether it's truck drivers or shearers, winemakers, you name it, has to have an impact and we're starting to see it.
1: Trevor Whittington also said it was imperative the border reopened sooner. Rather than later or sooner rather than the government was flagging, because he reckons w a businesses risk losing markets to other countries if they can 't get on a plane and meet their customers,
2: so the government was talking up its infrastructure investment plans in this budget. How much are they planning to spend daniel and and how much of that is going to be in the regions
1: it 's a big number it 's twenty seven billion dollars over the Ford estimates, which is uh, a material a material increase on what they were predicting just a year ago, and of that $27 billion, about $7.5 billion will be directed towards the regions for spending on roads and schools and hospitals, as well as things like power and water infrastructure. Um, but it should be noted that no money was put into the budget for any tier three rail line refurbishments, and we've seen some movement uh, in respect to that issue recently. But there's no money in the budget for them and we'll have to wait for later budgets to see if anything happens.
2: Now, one of the biggest issues facing farmers that we've talked a bit about on the Country Hour has been the availability of labour. Did the budget contain any measures that might help with that?
1: Frankly, not really. Um, not, what has already, not beyond what's already been announced, particularly uh, you know, that's with respect to the Wander Out Yonder campaign where the government provides some subsidies for workers to go out bush Um, But probably more to the point, the fact that the borders appear set to stay shut for longer suggests that those labour issues are probably only going to get more acute.
2: Yeah, I think there'd be a few farmers that agree with you there. Now, lastly, this budget surplus, it's built on iron ore royalties from the sounds of things. What does that say about WA's exposure to trade, Daniel?
1: Well, WA is particularly exposed to trade. Of all the Australian states, it's the most exposed. And basically, it just shows how crucial China is to the WA economy. According to Treasury, China will take 53% of WA's exports this financial year. That's a record amount. And uh, it's pretty staggering when you consider WA accounts for half of all of Australia's exports. Yeah, wow. So, you know, WA has its own trade office in Shanghai, and I think you can assume you know, from this state budget, really, that the state government will continue to effectively go it alone on trade policy with China, to a a certain extent, and try to put some distance between itself and Canberra.
2: Daniel, we'll talk a bit more about China in a moment, but the WA Nationals uh, have released a statement. They believe the Labor government has missed a golden opportunity. Leader Mia Davies believes the budget surplus should have been used to breathe life back into royalties for regions. She says, and I quote, Labor has plundered and pillaged this program to pay for their Perth projects, like the multi-billion dollar money pit Metronet, a $1.5 billion Perth city deal, pedestrian bridges and railway flyovers to reduce commuter times from the suburbs. Mia Davies says the Nationals don't begrudge spending in Perth as long as regional Western Australia is getting its fair share. But she feels that's not happening after seeing this budget. She doesn't know or she doesn't think it's going to happen in the future either, Daniel Mercer. Thank you so much for that wrap of the state budget, Daniel. Now, China might be our most valuable trading partner, but it hasn't made life easy for Australian farmers in 2020. Huge tariffs, allegations of dumping and illegal subsidies and export suspensions have really tested the trade. So when Agriculture Minister David Littleproud and Labor spokesman Joel Fitzgibbon met at the Rural Press Club yesterday, you can bet there were plenty of questions about how to deal with China. Here's a snippet of what the leaders had to say, beginning with Joel Fitzgibbon, who's worried too many trade eggs are in the China basket.
5: Diversifying our markets is the day job of every government. Uh, Members of the government telling me they only started thinking about diversifying our markets when they started a war with China. No, of course, we do that every day, I hope. I do it in my local economy in the Hunter region, looking for diversity all the time. So it's not really a fallback position. China is our largest trading partner. And I've said many times, we obviously have to be absolutely strident and robust in the defence of our values and Australian interests. But we can walk, uh, walk and chew gum too. Uh, and we how have, would Labor we, make we, sure
6: that that happened for well, we, exporters? We, well,
5: as Jeff Raby said in the Fin Review today, we've got to normalise the re- relationship and get it back to where most countries have it. But how, now, you, how we, do we normalise that relationship? We are an outlier, we are are an outlier in this debate. Lucy. No, we, uh, we are an outlier in this debate. We've had barley switched off, red meat switched off. We've had threats on wine. Probably more trouble to come there. We've had threats to turn off our steaming coal, which is of particular interest to me in the Hunter Valley. This relationship has fallen, the Australian-China relationship, has fallen to a point never seen uh, since Tiananmen Square and probably worse than that point. We, our, David can't go and speak to his counterpart in Beijing. He cannot speak to his counterpart. Do you want to...? Is that a fair comment? will confirm that. Always our how how always do we normalise happen. this relationship when people can't t- even talk to one another? This is our largest trading partner. We need to get this relationship back on track. Yeah, always diversified, but gee, you're going to have to find a, a, a very big new market or an aggregate of new markets to, to offset what we... Uh, well, well, sadly, Joel's been China. sitting on a rock for the last
7: six years. Let me tell you about diversification of markets. A free trade agreement with Japan, Korea, China, TPP11, that little $13.2 billion market, trillion marketplace that this mob said, no, nah, we can't ever get it, don't worry about it, kick it in the grass and you'll never get it. We got it. Then you've got Peru, Indonesia, Hong Kong, and we're signing up with EU and UK now. If that's diversification, so with all due respect, our track record looks pretty good. We've also put out uh, an extra six agricultural councillors in embassies and high commissions around the world, which takes it to 22. They get rid of the tariff barriers. Uh, but let me tell you that our job has been to open up markets And what I learned in grade eight business economics was a simple principle to spread your risk, not to have market concentration. Well, you know what? We've done it. But it's not our decision for exporters to decide where they send it to. They've made that decision. Those businesses, those exporters have said, we're sending it to China because they made arrangements. So the government's responsibility is to spread the risk by giving them other opportunities. We've done that. But let me just say about China, before Joel sensationalises it out of the room. Take beef, for example. We hit our quota under the free trade agreement by June. We are still going and they are still taking it. They are still taking our beef. Business-to-business business relationships between ourselves and China is still continuing on in a calm, methodical way. And we do want to continue to talk with China. But to have that, one party's got to put their hand out, be big enough and say, we're ready to talk, we'll wait. That's what good friends do. They'll have disagreements at times, and you respect that. But you've got to be prepared to have your hand out and
2: re-engage. David Littleproud with Joel Fitzgibbon at the National Rural Press Club event in Canberra, moderated by the ABC's Lucy Barber. A few barbs thrown there, a few shots fired. I'm interested in what you make of those comments from Federal Agriculture Minister David Littleproud and Joel Fitzgibbon. Do you think the government has done enough to spread market risk? Are you worried about more China pushback? If you'd like to have your say, feel free to flick me through a text on 0448 922604. Just remember to pop your name on that one and tell me where you're from. Love to hear from you. Now, a federal subsidy scheme which works to offset the costs of air freighting produce has been extended until next year. So this will be of interest to industries like Western Rock Lobster and Strawberries. The International Freight Assistance Mechanism received an extra $317 million in this week's federal budget. That's on top of the $360 million that's already been contributed. The mechanism was brought in when COVID-19 started to spread as passenger planes stopped flying and cargo space dried up. Because when that happened, it was suddenly a very expensive thing to get fresh produce out of Australia. Veronica Papacosta is the head of Seafood Industry Australia, and and she's relieved the scheme has been extended.
8: It was a fantastic program that really put the needs of Australian agriculture and seafood as a top line issue during COVID recovery. So to see it extended and allow us to actually really get back to good is a fantastic boon for the industry.
6: It's been quite some time now since the international border closed and those passenger flights stopped coming in. So cargo space became a real issue for industries like seafood. It's lost its prominence in the headlines, that issue, but is it still just as much of a problem now as as what it was?
8: Oh, Absolutely. So, I mean, obviously it's been quite a while. In actual fact, we missed the last Chinese New Year, which is actually coming up again. So, Part of the extension of IFAM until June thirty is that we'll actually make this Chinese New Year, which is a huge trading period, especially for things like lobster in WA. So these are really important times for us. And even though it's been quite a while and as you say, we haven't had the constant attention, but the, the markets are now starting to reopen. So our recovery period and actually trying to to respond to the increasing demand is where we actually get back to securing jobs and actually the profitability of the industry. So for us, this is the right time. So having that extension now means that we can really start locking in that recovery. I mean, part of it for us is also about becoming reliable trading partners. So IFAM actually helps us underpin our access to the market, but also maintaining Australia as a reliable trading partner and a force in overseas markets.
6: And would you say that it's worked in its current format so far or are there aspects of it that you would like to see tweaked as well, Veronica?
8: Look, there is no such thing as a perfect program. There's always going to be issues. One of the issues we identified earlier is that a lot of our fishing activity is in regional areas and IFAM works out of the central hubs like Sydney and Melbourne. So sometimes there have been issues getting product to those export hubs and IFAM has worked better for the higher volume producers. So, And seafood being a premium product is sometimes a, it's a high value product but sometimes low volume. So there, there were initial teething problems, there were some access problems because you had the entire country looking to the same program. So look, there's again, life without IFAM would be a lot worse than life with IFAM.
6: With this additional funding, the scheme has been extended until mid-next year. Do you feel like industry will be at the point where it can operate without government assistance in the freight space or will it need to be extended again? So, I mean, Budget
8: 2021 was a fantastic budget for the seafood industry because the other element of the budget in there was the federal government's $4 million investment in our Eat Seafood Australia campaign. So Seafood's running its first consumption marketing campaign which actually kicks off at the beginning of November. Not only do we have IFAM to help export to our international markets, but we're also driving domestic consumption with the assistance of the federal government. So, look, we have been very well taken care of and we're very grateful for that.
2: Veronica Papacosta from Seafood Industry Australia speaking to Joe Prendergast. At least at the country hour, I'm Jess Hayes. The time is 20 past 12. Now, farmers in Russia have now gone months without rain, prompting concerns about the season in the world's largest wheat exporter. Russian analyst Dr Dmitry Rilko says many of the farmers he's spoken to can't remember ongoing several months without rain. And while that may not sound like a lot to Australians, Dr Rilko says Russian farms are not set up to deal with it and it's stirred discussion about the impact of climate change on Russian agriculture.
9: I would say it's getting quite tense, and I would say it's getting uh, to be incredible because we have persistent dryness for the last couple of months across the vast area of western Volga, Central and uh, South Russia. Some farmers we talk we talk with even don't remember such uh, severe conditions.
7: How much rainfall over those few months?
9: Some areas did not receive anything say for example, the uh, entire Stavropol region uh, practically did not receive anything for last 2 months. What
7: could this mean for Russia's production uh, of grain?
9: The corridor, the corridor for uh, outcomes is still uh, very wide. I w- I would say we have basically as usual for such situations, we have basically two schools of mind. First uh, is uh, opt- people are of optimistic mood, and uh, other people are much more pessimistic. So, uh, and uh, the truth, uh, as usual, probably in between of these two extremes. So that our optimists, uh, they say that despite the dryness, if seeds uh, do not germinate, It is is fine because they will germinate sooner or later after good rains or good precipitation. And even if we keep them not germinated up until winter dormancy and throughout winter dormancy, they will uh, germinate in springtime and everything will be quite fine. But some people say that... It's highly risky when uh, most of your winter wheat goes into dormancy, uh, either without germination or at very early stages of development, of vegetation, in peep stage instead of bushing, instead of bushing. So it multiplies uh, the risks of winter and spring uh, disasters, so to say.
2: Russian analyst Dr Dmitry Rilko, speaking to Lucas Forbes about those drought conditions being experienced in Russia. That's the world's largest wheat exporter. So what does this all mean for Aussie grain growers? Nathan Cattle is managing director of Clear Grain Exchange. He says those dry conditions in Russia, as well as across some parts of the US, are stabilising low wheat prices.
3: Certainly, it's dry through Russia, Ukraine, and I'm hearing reports through the US Southern Plains. So that's obviously all key grain producers, especially of wheat. So that's putting a fair bit of support in the market and we're saying prices react accordingly to the upside.
2: Would it be fair to say, Nathan, that maybe in particularly in places like Russia and the Ukraine, that there is, um, I guess, less uh, they're less equipped to deal with the type of drought conditions that maybe we're pretty accustomed to here in Australia. And I guess what impact does that have on the market's response?
3: Yeah, well, I suppose the comment I'd make there, and without, you know, I don't profess to be an agronomist, so but certainly West Australian, Australian growers are very good at, you know, using every drop of rain to put into grain production. So the water use efficiency is excellent. You could certainly say that through Russia and Ukraine, they're still developing those skills. So, drier conditions could potentially have a bigger impact if you drew that conclusion to the downside of on the grain production. What I would say though is, analysts uh, would be factoring that in. So, people that are monitoring it daily and the traders that are in the market. Uh, thinking through that and uh, factoring that into the price. And like I say at the moment, the market is trying to trying to work out what sort of impact this is going to have on production and prices reacting to the upside as a result of that.
2: So we've seen the grain price, the wheat price rally over the last couple of days and weeks. So how much can we attribute this dry conditions in those parts of the world that you mentioned there to, to this? Certainly that's Having a big impact at the moment. So, I mean, growers would be all too aware that
3: the market's been relatively flat for a number of months now until this last few weeks, as you say. What I would say as well is that the Australian crop has seemingly been pricing pretty well into offshore markets for at least the last month now, probably the last two or three months. So, that's been there has been demand for Australian grain into our offshore destinations so that's been supportive of prices and now we're starting to see you know the impact of these dry conditions in other major producers that compete with us and everybody's trying to work out well how much grain how much less grain is going to be available and that's getting factored into prosto so there's a number of factors there but this is a major one that the market's sort of focused on at the moment for sure and the other point to note there is you know these crops will go into dormancy soon. So there's a bit of volatility now. The crops sort of, you know, they've been planted, getting established and emerging and soon they'll go under snow cover. And often then, you know, there's a lot less information and speculation around over the, the size of the crop.
2: Nathan, we've obviously got some unclear signals out of China about, well, there was that latest situation with CBH and the decision to, I guess, ramp up inspections of CBH wheat out To that market, do you see that if there's less, you know, if there's going to be a pretty significant impact on supply, that maybe this might put us in a pretty good position to ride out any potential volatility out of China if there's just not the grain in the world.
3: Well, definitely, if grain, if there's less grain coming out of our competitors, and to give you an idea, you know, I did read something there this morning that domestic flour prices in Russia are back near record highs. So they're considering, this isn't fact yet, but they're considering potentially, you know, putting a cap on exports from January through to June or somewhere in that period. Now, they're not big exporters traditionally through that January period anyway, because they are, you know, it's cold up there and everything's sort of iced over. So there's generally less movement of grain out of those regions then anyway, but that's still supporting the market. So coming back to your original question, if there's less supply of grain coming from, you know, our competitors on the world market, then definitely that pushes more demand our way, which is good for growers.
2: What do you think? I mean, crystal ball scenario here. What are we thinking we can expect at least in the short and medium term? Are we expecting the price to stay pretty stable or do you think that we can probably anticipate a little bit more of a rally? uh, always a hard question I know yeah
3: of course it is and I'd love to you know be really definitive here what I'll say is generally markets are trying to factor in the information they get to hand so as this information's coming we're seeing prices react now sometimes that information can overshoot to the upside but I think everybody at the moment in the market is still trying to get a handle on just the impact of the dry conditions and how meaningful that's going to be as I say it is going to go under dormancy and then they've still got a spring to go so you know spring rains can change the shape of a crop Um, but you know conditions aren't ideal in those areas at the moment which has supported our price and made Australian grain it's keeping Australian grain attractive on global markets and that's good for us.
2: Clear Grain Exchange Manager Nathan Cattle I wonder what you think about that. Will you be capitalising on that price rally and forward selling any unallocated grain or will you be hedging your bets in the hopes of further price rises? Feel free to get in touch on the text line 0448 922604. Now, just before we get the news headlines with Ali Colvin, I forgot to mention this yesterday. Kalani grain grower Bob Nixon has stepped down as the chair of GEWA. It's the Grains Industry Association of WA. Now, he was in that role for three years. Narogen farmer Ashley Weiss has been appointed the new chair of Giwa and Intergrain's Tress Walmsley is his deputy.
10: But it's time to get the news headlines now
2: with Ali Colvin.
10: Ali, what's making news? Thanks, Jess. Police say a surfboard's been recovered from the water near Esperance where it's believed a man's been bitten by a shark. Police say the missing surfer is understood to be an adult male. The incident was reported just before 11 o'clock this morning at Kelp Beds Beach, a popular surf spot in Wiley Bay. The Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, says the WA government can thank his changes to the GST for the state's budget surplus. WA has bucked the national trend, forecasting a $1.2 billion surplus this financial year in the middle of a recession. Bumper iron ore prices, combined with a larger share of GST revenue, have helped the state avoid a deficit. The Premier, Mark McGowan, has confirmed two new cases of coronavirus overnight. Both cases are returned overseas travellers now in hotel quarantine in Perth. Victoria has recorded 11 new cases and no deaths in the past 24 hours. The Premier there says there are now fewer than 200 active cases of COVID-19 across the state for the first time since the end of June. Thanks, Jess. More news at one.
2: Thank you for that update from the newsroom, Ali. Time for an update from the Bureau. I'm joined by... Steph Bond. Uh, Steph, what's happening across the South West Land Division today? Uh, Morning or afternoon, Jess, sorry. Uh, It is
6: past midday, isn't it? It is. Um, I know I have the same problem. I know, particularly when it's just past that.
2: uh, And it's Friday, so you can be forgiven.
6: Thank you. Um, Yes, in the southwest land division, we actually have some pretty clear conditions today, just some cloud around the southwest and maybe some very isolated showers around the uh, south coastal and southwest coastal districts. Uh, Not much rainfall with that, though, just a one or two millimetres. Tomorrow... We have a uh, ridge developing just to the south of the state and we're going to just see those mild conditions continue through the South Land Division. Once again, maybe an isolated shower near the South Coastal District and the South West Coastal District, but uh, maybe just one millimetre with the, those showers. Uh, we will see temperatures start increasing ever so slightly in the northern parts of the South Land Division over the weekend. And um, by Sunday, we are looking at uh, clear conditions across the Southwestland Division. By Monday, we have a trough starting to develop near the west coast. So we'll start to see those temperatures uh, really pick up in the northern parts of the Southwestland Division getting into those uh, early 30s. And by Tuesday, uh, that trough is just off the west coast. And that means our warmer temperatures are gonna start increasing through the central parts and even the southern parts as well, where central parts will see those temperatures reach in those mid to uh, sorry, low to mid-30s. And along the south coast, probably just reaching into those mid twenties. Um, but as far as rainfall is concerned for the South Westland Division, we're not looking at much at all uh, over the next four days.
2: What about the northern and eastern forecast districts, Steph?
6: Uh, yeah, that's probably where all the action is over the next couple of days. We today we'll just see some isolated showers and storms this afternoon uh, develop through the North Interior, and we're starting to see some storms at the moment through the northern parts of the Kimberley and that will extend down through the eastern parts of the Kimberley this afternoon as well. Uh, tomorrow we do have a trough deepening through the Gascoyne Goldfields Nuclear District from tomorrow and we'll see those showers and storms extend further south to be through the northeast Gascoyne, uh, the entire central interior uh, into the eastern Goldfields and also through that nor- uh, Kimberley region as well. Um, and we will have some fairly gusty uh, northeastern northwesterly winds on the eastern side of the trough. So we'll see uh, those fire dangers start to increase through the Gascoyne and uh, South Interior and Nuclear District as well tomorrow. Sunday, that trough uh, moves ever so slightly east. So we'll see those thunderstorms extend from pretty much the western Pilbara through the northeast Gascoyne into the South Interior and the Nuclear District district temperatures will increase uh, all the way down to the southeast coast area there Um, and once again with those gusty northeast to northwesterly winds ahead of that trough we'll see those fire dangers increase throughout most of the eastern parts of the state uh, those storms on Sunday, particularly through that southeast parts in the Euclid, Nullarbor area, we may see some uh, good totals with those storms. We may see up to around 15 to 20 millimetres, but those will be quite patchy. Most of those storms, you'll be lucky to get maybe two to five millimetres uh, through the central parts of the state. Uh, as Monday comes around, that trough continues to move east up through the south interior, and those storms will contract a little bit eastwards to lie mainly through the south interior. The southeast parts of the Euclid and the far northern east parts of the Gascoyne, um, and by Tuesday that trough has moved into South Australia, and we'll just see those showers and storms contract further to be in mostly the South Interior District. Uh, so as far as rainfall concerns, probably the best bet is the Sunday night into Monday um, with those storms in the southeast parts of the state. Steph, are there any warnings? Uh, we currently have a fire weather warning for severe conditions through the East Pilbara inland and Ashburton inland. And as mentioned before, with those increased uh, temperatures and gusty northeast to northwesterly winds tomorrow, we will have a fire weather warning for severe conditions through the Gascoyne inland, Eucla, and the South Interior.
2: Now, Steph, I know you don't like looking too far beyond four days down the track, but. I noticed on your BOM website the latest Climate Outlook, which was released yesterday, and it says, in the shorter term, the fortnight from the 12th to the 25th of October is likely to be wetter than average for much of Australia and very likely to be greater, well, more than a 75% chance of rain for parts of the north, but West Coast WA and much of Western Tasmania are likely to be drier than average. Does that mean you're not really expecting any rain for most of this month? I guess
6: that's just for the next two weeks and that is uh, the kind of figures you've read out is very consistent with the La Nina pattern that we've got at the moment um, where we have seen that increased activity uh, a little bit through the Kimberley Um, but just remember for October figures are still quite low I guess for most of those central and eastern parts of the state so when it says 75% chance of exceeding the median your median might only be 5 millimetres but certainly for the western part uh, when we we have that La Nina, um, we do tend to see a, a less than average um, kind of situation, which is pretty much what that outlook's going for.
2: Mm, we'll hear a bit more a bit later in the show, just shortly from a Victorian, about the Victorian growers and why they're a bit smiley about that. Thank you for the update from the Bureau, Steph Bond. Now... I've got a text in here from James in Coolin. He says Great to finally hear a grain marketer talking up the price of our commodities for once. We've been starting to wonder whether they're working for farmers or their merchant mates lately. Thanks for that text, James. I wonder if James is heading to the Coolin bush races. Uh, organisers party this weekend. There won't be actually any races this year. Unfortunately, the annual event was cancelled due to COVID. But this year, the organisers who usually have to work at the races will finally get the chance to party themselves. So good on you. After 25 years, I think you deserve it. Now, just quickly looking at the rainfall totals in the last 24 hours, only one location recorded rain at five mils or above. And that was Margaret River Airstrip in the Kimberley, which received five mils. No, else in WA recorded more than three mils. Now, on Wednesday, I saw an internal email that was circulated for ABC planning purposes, and it said the Bureau of Meteorology was forecasting significant rain for Victoria and Tasmania over the next 48 hours. It warned some areas were at risk of flooding, and let's find out if that prediction was accurate. Angus Verley is the ABC rural reporter for the Wimmera region in the west of Victoria. Angus, you're based in Horsham. How much rain fell in your gauge?
11: Hi, Jess. I had uh, 33 mil in my uh, backyard gauge. Wow. That's a lot of rain. <laughs> sure is. So the, the Bureau, in this case, they really were quite spot on with their forecasting.
2: And was it widespread?
11: Uh, look, it varied, of course, as it always does, but uh, we had a lot of people calling in their, their figures and on the upper end it was really around that 45 to 50 mil range and then on the lower end... Uh, around 15. So if you said sort of 15 to 50 across most of Western Victoria, apart from the further northwest as you head toward Mildura, and some of those areas got around that 10 mil mark or even a bit less.
2: So is that rain welcome at this point in the season?
11: Oh, very, very much so. Talking to farmers yesterday, uh, they really described it as, as the perfect rain, a textbook rain they couldn't have scripted it any better, and I suppose to sort of put it in perspective, b- before the rain, uh, the district was looking really good. There was a lot of potential there, uh, but we were looking for rain. The crops hadn't sort of started to visibly suffer. They they just wanted a rain, and, and they wanted exactly this rain. So uh, it means now that they they're going to realise that potential. There'll be you'll have things like lentils will be flowering for longer, setting more pods. Uh, wheat will be filling wider with fatter grains. So it is really, a really valuable rain.
2: Yeah, I reckon a few growers will be a bit jealous over here, particularly in the north where those heads just don't seem to have filled as, as well as they had hoped. Now, Angus, what are we looking at in terms of value this year of total crop? Yeah, so it's a good
11: question, Jess, after this rain. Actually, we've got some statistics from the Local uh, Development Association and they did a bit of a back-of-the-envelope calculation Saying that in the Wimmera, Southern Mallee region of Victoria, the harvest would on average be worth in the order of six to seven hundred million dollars. That's from grain and pasture, livestock. Now they're saying that this rain could actually be worth around a hundred million dollars just in itself. That's a big addition uh, to the
2: bottom line. It
11: it certainly is from one rainfall event. And they said that. we really don't often get rainfall events in, in, in this magnitude in October, maybe once in 10 years. So it's uh, it really is, a, it's a nice amount of rain and it's fallen at a really nice time.
2: When do you expect harvest to start, Angus, over your way?
11: Look, it won't be too far away in that far northwest part of the state that I mentioned, but here I'm in Horsham, so in the central Wimmera and, you know, canola's just finished flowering. Lentils probably aren't even in full flower yet so it is going to be quite a while, maybe uh, late November and it will be a little bit later than usual just because we have had such a favourable season which has extended that, that growing period.
2: Fantastic news and was there any flooding or damage out of that? I mean 50 mils, that's a lot of rain to get in a very short space of time.
11: Yeah, look, where where I am, there, I haven't heard reports of any damage, but there is flooding in southwest Victoria as you head toward the coast. That's high rainfall country that isn't unaccustomed to falls of that total, so they are set up to cope with it, and a lot of that is grazing country, so it's not going to affect crops. Uh, there are some cropping areas where they probably will have some waterlogging issues, but again, they are accustomed to that. Uh, the biggest impact, I suppose, on the damage side of the equation is really around hay production. So we're in full full swing with hay production at the moment. There's a lot of hay that's already been cut. So for those windrows that got a substantial dump of rain on them, it is going to mean a longer curing time. The quality is probably going to be reduced a bit. There was probably a bit of uh, nutrient loss there. But the general sentiment there from everyone that I've spoken to is that the benefits to the grain crops really, really far outweigh the impact on those hay crops. Um, One farmer sent me a text. He said that he reckons the damage to his vetch hay might amount to one or two percent of his overall uh, value of his overall harvest, but it would add at least 10 percent to his grain harvest. So he was very, very happy to get it.
2: Now, you mentioned that you're still a little while away from getting into harvest at full swing. But overall, how would you summarise how your region's sort of grain season is is shaping up so far?
11: I'd say for the Wimmera, so for that central west sort of part of Victoria, it's looking pretty much as good as you're going to see it. Really, uh, you'd struggle to complain with the way things are looking. Again, that northwest area is typically drier and it won't be looking as good at the moment, but it is... uh, Still looking certainly better than it did last year.
2: Mm. So on track for a bit of an above average season then, would you say?
11: Yeah, yeah, certainly. Look, it will be above last year. Uh, Even last year we were setting receival site records at some of our grain receivals, Uh, And this year, I'd say we'd be on track to, to break some of those records again.
2: Oh, that's great news for you guys over there. And how does this all, yeah, I think you touched on it there, but compared to last year, so last year was a solid season, this year's just looking even better.
11: Yeah, last year, it wasn't a bad year. Rain sort of, we didn't have a lot of it, but it fell at the right times. So generally, Western Victoria had a pretty good year. But apart from that far northwest, that region they refer to as the Milawa, it actually was in the throes of a pretty bad drought. So they haven't had a wet year up there this year, but certainly the drought's broken for them and they're going to have a harvest. So very welcome for them.
2: So lots of smiling farmers over in Victoria.
11: Well, if if the farmers who've had that rain, if they're not smiling now, I'm not sure what it would take to make them smile.
2: (laughs) Uh, Angus Fairley, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, so, yes. That's Angus Verley, ABC Rural reporter for the Wimmera region in western Victoria. Some good news out of that part of the world. It sounds like they're enjoying the benefits of that La Nina weather pattern. And I hear Tasmania. Also got some good rain, plenty around that state, but particularly across the north-east and east coast. Tassie's dairy, cropping and livestock farmers are now fairly confident they'll have a decent spring. But if you hop onto the ABC Rural Facebook page, you can see what impact that rain had on an unfinished bridge at Orford in Tasmania yesterday. About 400 houses in the region will now be without road access. It's just gone quarter to one. Now, a North Queensland businessman has been fined $65,000 over the death of an international backpacker who collapsed with heat stress while picking fruit in the Burdekin region. The 27-year-old Belgian backpacker Olivier Karaman died in Townsville Hospital the day after collapsing on a watermelon melon farm near Ayr. Bradford-Clark Roston pleaded guilty to breaching Queensland's Work, Health and Safety Act by failing to comply with health and safety obligations. Fiona O'Sullivan is the managing, Manager of Agriculture for Workplace Health and Safety Queensland. And she says this is a timely reminder about the regulations and how they apply to outdoor workers, particularly in the ag sector the
8: workplace health and safety legislation has some very specific requirements for people who operate businesses and supply labour. Business operators must provide adequate information, instruction and training about how to do a job properly, which is easily understood by the worker. That has to cover off on all the risks that the worker is likely to experience at the workplace. And in summer in Queensland, heat stress can be a really high risk issue that must be managed.
7: Fiona health and safety regulations very difficult often to enforce on farms does this really emphasize however that there does need to be you know strong oversight of the conditions that workers are experiencing
8: Oh, most definitely, Tom, Um, and while workplace health and safety inspectors are out there in the paddocks um, checking on workplaces, it's actually the duty holder, the the major duty holder here is the business owner. The business owners must ensure they've got safe systems of work to manage the risk of their workers, and heat stress is part of that that has to be managed. So working in the heat of the day, um, if it can be at all avoided, should be avoided.
2: Growcom is Queensland's peak industry body for horticulture. Its manager of policy is Richard Shannon who says this shows what can happen if growers fail to comply with labour laws.
12: We speak regularly with our growers about best practice in terms of workplace health and safety and uh, at the time um, we did communicate with our members about the importance of hydration and breaks during uh, what can be a really long and hot summer here in Queensland. Um, we will use again this opportunity of the, um, the ruling to re-emphasise uh, those messages with our growers.
7: Just how damaging can cases like this be to the reputation of the farm sector at a time when really labour is in quite short supply and the industry needs to attract all the workers it can?
12: Oh, look, obviously it doesn't help in attracting people to our industry, but um, I think um, at the same time, it's been a really um, important wake-up call, I think, uh, to the industry to improve our practice. So uh, it might make it a little bit harder to attract people possibly, to our industry, but um, ideally the improved employment practice, improved induction of employees will mean that we're able to keep uh, workers uh, in our industry longer because of the changes that have been put in place as a result of this really uh, tragic
2: incident. GroCom's Richard Shannon speaking with Tom Major. Now, Meat and Livestock Australia has lost another legal fight in the long-running saga over a patent granted to US company Branhaven. National Rural Reporter Clint Jasper has the story.
0: It started in 2010 when Australia's Patent Office awarded Branhaven LLC, a patent that MLA believes will have a chilling effect on genomic research in Australia's cattle industry. In 2018 and 2019, the Federal Court told Branhaven it could keep the patent if it made it more specific. And yesterday, the full bench of the Federal Court dismissed an appeal of those decisions and told MLA to pay Branhaven's costs. University of Queensland Professor of Intellectual Property, Dr Matthew Rimmer, says MLA's concerns are valid and even though it hasn't been successful, the legal battle has been important.
13: I'm concerned that the broad patent covering the use of genomic markers and the selection of breeding in cattle has an impact upon the freedom of Australian researchers and scientists to do work in agriculture, but it also threatens the ability of the cattle industry and the dairy industry to develop some downstream
0: products as well. Did you step us through the legal steps we've gotten until this point?
13: Well, it's been a very long-winded dispute. I think it is positive that Meat and Livestock Australia are entering the fray in relation to intellectual property and agriculture and trying to represent as best they can the interests of the meat and dairy and livestock industries. Thus far, they have been able to narrow the um, patent claims during the dispute, but the opposing parties, and they have kind of shifted during the dispute between Cargill and Brandhaven and Select Traits Genomics, Those patent holders have essentially been able to defend the validity of their invention uh, through those different stages.
0: MLA has said that um, even though it may have lost in uh, this instance, the, the, before the full bunch of the federal court, the initial patent that they uh, appealed against is a lot more narrow now. So in some senses, has that been a success of this process for MLA? Uh,
13: Meat and Livestock Australia have had some small success in terms of narrowing the scope of the patent. Uh, But thus far, they have been unsuccessful in knocking out the um, patent altogether. And that must be a little bit frustrating for them, given in the parallel field of human genetic testing, uh, the High Court of Australia rejected a very broad patent by genetics for being an exorbitant monopoly.
0: That brings me to the next question. Because when all of this started in the federal court, in the lead-up to that first decision by Justice Beach, there was chatter about this case having parallels with uh, Yvonne Darcy v. Marriott Genetics, uh, the breast cancer gene case. Can you just discuss a bit more about the, those parallels and whether that decision does have any influence or bearing on this decision or where this matter may go?
13: Uh, the High Court of Australia uh, rejected uh, a patent by Mary Genetics in relation to genetic testing for breast cancer and ovarian cancer on the basis that they were claiming intellectual information. And they overturned previous decisions that had found in favour of Mary Genetics in the Federal Court of Australia and the full Federal Court of Australia. In the kind of initial conflict between Meat and Livestock Australia and Cargill, there were issues raised about the application of that myriad decision to the context of agricultural biotechnology. And to my mind, there are some tensions between the different layers of courts in Australia over their approach to patent law and biotechnology. Um, so I am intrigued, you know, whether or not the High Court of Australia itself thinks that the Myriad decision should have a broad operation, or whether it should only just kind of apply in exceptional circumstances.
0: I'm talking with Dr. Matthew Rimmer about Meat and Livestock Australia's long-running legal fight looking at cattle genomic testing. Moving kind of outside of the realm of the courts, does this judgment of the full bench of the federal court in this matter um, raise any questions about the need or, or opportunity for reforms at the political level in this space? In the context of
13: agricultural biotechnology, there have been a number of vocal National Party and Rural Liberal Party members who have argued that there is a need for law reform. In this particular sphere, Um, they've been very kind of concerned about the broad patents being put forward, not only by Cargill and Branhaven and Select Traits in this particular dispute, but also more generally in other fields of agriculture and farming. So when this dispute concludes, I, I think there will be further pressure within the federal government to consider some policy options to better balance our patent system in terms of how it deals with agriculture.
0: Dr Matthew Rimmer there. In a statement, Meat and Livestock Australia says it's happy the original patent has been narrowed down through this process. And while MLA remains concerned by the vague nature of the amended patent application, it's undertaking research to map the reduced patent scope across the Australian bovine genome.
2: Clint Jasper reporting there. Uh, it's six minutes to one o'clock. Now, just quickly, the Eastern Young Cattle Indicator soared to a new record this week, hitting 794 cents a kilo carcass weight. It's 320 cents higher than the same time last year. That's due to a short supply and the fact that many parts of Australia are having a pretty decent season. Prices at Casino this week were averaging 854 cents a kilo. That's 450 cents higher than last year. It was a smaller yarding at Roma in Queensland this week and that pushed prices for steers to a record new high. In a moment we'll get a wrap of this week's wool market, but first, make sure you tune into Landline this Sunday. It'll feature some of the Nullarbor stations near the South Australian border that are currently in a very severe drought.
0: These are some of our Merino maidens. Uh, They've just turned one year old and as you can see the poor
11: little tikes haven't seen a green stick in their life this is their
0: their second year in drought
11: last year was the worst year on record for rainfall it was half the previous bad year
0: so uh, so yeah this year we've had no significant rainfall
11: and every little bit of water's like gold there's only probably a week's water there but I'm <laughs> I'm using it so I've grown up out here, so I know it breaks eventually. It's just a case of hang in until it does. So. Oh, you get very tired. You get get a bit despondent, but it doesn't do you any
0: good.
2: Just a few of the Nullarbor Pastoralists who will feature on this Sunday's edition of Landline on ABC TV at 12.30. They're amazing and different tales of coping with severe drought adversity you might have heard their stories recently on the country hour but now you'll get to see them on tv to the wool market now where the eastern market indicator was up 26 cents this week closing at 10.22 the western market indicator was up 30 cents it closed uh, ten fifty four cents uh, west coast wool sales manager danny burkett joins me with all the details danny did that rise in the market surprise you at all
4: uh, I don't have the word surprise, but it was certainly helped by the volume on offer. So we've had some uh, reasonably low volumes this time of year in comparison to previous. So that low supply is certainly helping the market. In Fremantle, over the two days, 18 micron up 55 clean to close $13.95. 19's up 40, closing at $11.90. 20 microns, 21s, and 22s closed at $10.50, $10.20, and $10.10. They were up 20 cents clean for the week. Pieces and bellies on the fine end up 70 cents, medium types 50 to 40. Oddments across the board, locks, stains, crutchings, all 20 to for $0.30 cents dearer. So a positive tone across all wool types in the market, again, for the third week in a row. Very interestingly, if you sold wool in the Western Australian market this week, using the average cents per kilo and the average bar weight for our market, $1,303 per bar on average. And Fremantle was the place to be offering wool this week as we closed at $7.20 greasy per average a kilo, Melbourne $6.54 and Sydney $6.72. So we had the highest average for the week and that translated to those growers that offered as we had something like 12 to 13% withdrawn prior to sale across the country. So good result for those who actually hit the market.
2: Danny, who were the main buyers this week?
4: Well, if I term, um, I'll term it this way. We had China, China and China, and they were represented by Lemp, Briere, Tech Wool and Endeavour Wool. PJ Morris, uh, was certainly in the top four. They were in the mix. That's a WA based company. So Lemp's took 18% of the fleece wool across the country. Tech Wool took 15%. And Endeavour Wool's 10%, as well as Morrison and a half. So even though there's a fair spread of buyers, which is always good to see, um, very limited activity out of India and out of Italy. They are other main buyers. Uh, but yes, China, China, China. So great to have them in the market. And some good news out of China during the week. Uh, domestic consumption within China is on the rise. So that bodes very well for our product.
2: And Danny, just quickly, what are we expecting next week?
4: We have Sydney, Melbourne, Fremantle. Fremantle, a one-day sale, just over 30,000 bales on offer. Again, uh, supply is the key at the moment, and that low supply will should ensure a reasonably solid market as we walk into next week.
2: Danny Burkett, West Coast Wool Sales Manager. Thanks for that update, Danny. Now, on yesterday's program, you might have heard about Australia's canola trade being exposed to possible policy changes in the EU. You can always jump online. There's a story up there and you'll find it straight away if you Google ABC Rural and canola. That's it from me today. It's been fantastic to have you tuned in. Belinda Varischetti will be back with you on Monday. It's news time now, one o'clock.
1: You've been listening to an ABC podcast.